Grace is undeserved, and grace is also the legacy that the Lord has given us through many, many churches that are part of the Grace Fellowship. So from Alexandria, Virginia, to the eastern shore, in this D.C. area, there's about 11, 10 churches that are Grace churches, sister churches that started in what was the Temple Hills Church and now is the Clinton Church. And to represent that from the Clinton Church is Pastor Jack Hunt today, a man who has been in the ministry for 25 years, 22 years married to his sweetheart Heather with five boys. Pastor Hunt is the executive pastor. He is the associate pastor. He is the missions pastor. He is one of the teaching and preaching pastors, adult ministry pastors. I'm sure I'm not counting all the areas, but Pastor Jack Hunt is also a fellow pastor and a brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to welcome Pastor Jack Hunt to the ministry today at Grace Church here, Waldorf. God bless you, Pastor. Good morning. morning. Let's open, let's uh, take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you for this body of believers that have been called by your name. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity just to lift you up today. And I ask, Lord, now as we look into your word, you'll make your word clear in spite of anything that I say, that you'll allow your word to go forth. I ask, Lord, that you'll speak in spite of me, and you'll be glorified, and that at the end of this day, we'll be a little more like Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18 today. And as you go there, I just want to introduce myself a little bit. I want to tell you a little bit about me. Um, have you ever heard one of those testimonies where it's like this dynamic testimony where this guy was out, he was selling drugs, he was killing people, and you just hear that testimony and you just think, I'm so glad God, God got to him before he got to me. Um, that's not my testimony. Let me tell you my testimony. Uh, I accepted Christ when I was 17, but in spite of accepting Christ when not accepting Christ when I was 17, I was a church kid. And let me tell you what I mean by a church kid. My mother's water broke on her way to church when she had me. And when her water broke, they had to get a hold of my father, and they had a hard time getting a hold of him because he was driving the church bus. And so literally, I was this close to being born in church. And you know, and my father, he wandered from the Lord for a little bit, but when I was eight years old, he accepted Christ, and he rededicated his life to Christ, and then I really became a church kid. If you ever have a dad who gets saved and really gets changed, then you become a church kid, because what happened is my dad started teaching Sunday school, my dad started ushering, and before we knew it, dad was the chairman of the board of this little church we were in in North Carolina, and you hear about people who every time the lights are on, they're in church, that was us. Matter of fact, we often let the pastor in on Sunday morning because we were often waiting for him to get there. Okay? We were there all the time. As I, grow up, as I grew up, we were in the youth group. Uh, James didn't mention, I, I met my wife in youth group, by the way, great place to meet a wife. Um, but my dad had this rule, said, hey, if you're living in my house, you're going to be in church. And I'll say this to parents here, great rule. You know, encourage your kids in walking with the Lord by modeling it before them. But what happened is I grew up in the church, and what was awesome is at 17, I got saved as a result of the witness of a couple of my friends in youth group. And what is a blessing, I look back and I say, you know, it's such a blessing. God kept me from making a lot of the mistakes that end up making these exciting testimonies. 
And I thank the Lord for that. But I want to tell you something. What's, what's interesting is because I was able to avoid some of those mistakes and some of the pitfalls, what has happened to me at times in my life is I found myself looking at people who make those mistakes or maybe who are in those sins, and rather than looking at them with grace, I sometimes look at them, I'm trying to think of the right word here, I sometimes look at them with questions. Sometimes look at them with an attitude of self-righteousness. Instead of seeing them as someone who needs to be saved by God's grace, sometimes I look at them and say, you know what? They did that to themselves. And instead of extending the love of Christ to them, I often extend in my, in my mind an attitude of judgment. And what that's called is that's called the sin of self-righteousness. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I believe in a group of believers this size, there are probably some of you out there like me. And you look around, and you know that you've been saved by God's grace. You know that you don't deserve salvation, but sometimes in your mind, in your weaker moments, you look at people who are struggling, and rather than looking at them as someone who needs to hear God's grace, you look at someone and say, they did it themselves. Here's the problem. What I find is interesting, in the church today, we have almost this idea of tears of sin, these ideas that there are things that we can do that, you know, if I do this, for instance, there are certain things that I know as a pastor, if I do them, my ministry's over tomorrow. But then there are other sins that we can engage in on a regular basis, and not only do we not get judged for them by the church, sometimes we actually get celebrated for them. You know, Think about it. The sin of pride is everywhere. But we don't often look at it and say, you know, that's a real problem. Instead, we look at it and say, well, that's not that big a deal. And what I think is, I think the most Christian of all sins is the sin of self-righteousness. It's this sin, this desire to think that we're better than we actually are, to forget the power of God's grace in our life, and instead to begin to judge people around us. And listen, I'm not here just to beat you up. I want to look at a passage that Scripture has to say about this because what I, what I think is interesting, what I realized in my own life is the sin of self-righteousness could be so pervasive and so damaging, it actually damaged everything else about my walk. And one of the things that's interesting is we look at this sin and we don't see it as a big deal. As a matter of fact, a lot of Christians wouldn't even call it a sin at all. But you know, when we look at what Jesus has to say about it, it's pretty damaging. It's pretty condemning. As a matter of fact, what I think is interesting, when Jesus was walking here on this earth, when he was preaching and teaching, he reserved his harshest criticism for those that were self-righteous. Remember when he looked at the Pharisees, the Pharisees had this idea of self-righteousness, and he looked at them and said, who warned you to flee, you brood of vipers? You whitewashed tombs. Look good on the outside, dead on the inside. And you know we need to also, this gives me real pause. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus comes and he exercises his judgment, do you know where he's going to start? In his house, among his people. And you know, one of the first things I think he's going to start rooting out of our hearts and dealing with in our hearts is this sin of self-righteousness. And some of you might be here today and you might be thinking, Jack, I, maybe you're taking this a little bit too seriously. So I want to take you to a passage, Luke chapter 18, we're going to be beginning in verse 9, where Jesus really describes this idea of self-righteousness and shows us the dangers and the powers of self-righteousness. This is a story, you'll, you'll know the, the name of the story, the story is uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm going to read the passage, I want to, I want to lay out a couple things for you real quick before we walk all the way through it. 
Beginning of verse 9, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went, away, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus uh, says right off, he says, he, he's told this parable to people who thought highly of themselves and looked down on others. Thought that they themselves were righteous and looked down on others. So he's attacking the sin of self-righteousness in the Pharisees. And he tells an interesting story. And I think sometimes we have heard some of these things so long. You know, the church has been around for 2,000 years. We've been covering these teachings for so long. We forget what was actually heard by the original hearers. Because when I say the word Pharisee, we immediately say, that's the bad guy. Here's the thing that's kind of crazy. When the original hearers of this parable heard Pharisee, you know what they heard? They heard, that's the good guy. Actually, the people in first century Judea thought the Pharisees were doing things right. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He, he, this is actually the, the purpose statement of the whole Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And think about that. There's a lot loaded into that. He's saying, listen, you guys are looking at the scribes and Pharisees, and you're saying those guys are righteous, and I'm telling you, that's not righteous enough. So all the people that were there, when they heard the word Pharisee, they heard good guy. When they heard the word tax collector, we can relate to this, right? <laughs> when you hear tax collector, you, we all, ugh, I just filed my taxes. I'm glad that I, if you work for the IRS today, I'm sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't dislike you. I'm just miss my, miss my taxes. Um, anyway, but we hear, the t- we hear the word tax collector. We think, oh, that, we understand that a little bit, but we don't understand it the way they understood it. Because the tax collectors in first century Judea were not like our tax collectors today. Our tax collectors are paid a wage, and they do a job. The way the tax collectors in the ancient world, in the Roman system worked was, they were told, well, first off, what the Romans did was they were really smart. They said, we don't want to go into these countries and collect taxes. So we're going to recruit people from within that country, and we're going to have them collect the taxes for us. And then, to make the pot a little sweeter, because basically you're asking someone to betray their country, they'd say, tell you what, here's how much taxes you have to collect. Any you collect above that, you get to keep. And we see this happen in some of the tax collector stories we see in the New Testament. Because remember Zacchaeus, when he accepted Christ, when he realized that Christ was the Messiah, what was the first thing he did? He said, I'm going to give back all that I've stolen, because that was the practice of tax collector. So I want you to understand, there are these two guys, and one's the good guy in their mind, and one's the bad guy in their mind. Let's look at the tail of the tape here. I want to just share just a little bit about what's going on here. The Pharisees were highly, highly religious. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees, by the time they were around 12 years old, had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Think about that. They were highly religious. They were very diligent to keep the law. They were considered the leaders of the nation. And against that is the, Pharise- uh, is the tax collector. He's a traitor to his people. 
He's working for the enemy. Imagine if we were conquered and there were some among us who cooperated with the enemy. How would you feel about them? That's who this guy was. He was assumed to be a thief because that was the whole system. I guarantee you this. If you wanted to pick one of these two people to invite to dinner, you would not invite the tax collector. And if you did, you'd count all the silverware when they left. He was assumed to be a thief. He was hated by everyone. As a matter of fact, this was the one group of people that the Jewish nation said, it's okay to hate these people, even though they're one of us. And on the Pharisee side, we have this internal thing that's going on too. Internally, the Pharisee thought he was good. He thought he had it all together. He was patting himself on the back for how righteous he was. I fast twice a week. You know, I give a tenth of all that I have. And all the people are watching this and saying, yes, that's a good man. And he looked down on others. On the other side, we have the tax collector. How would you characterize a tax collector? He was a sinner, and he knew it. He was humbled by his sins. He was broken by his sins. And we see here that he would not, he would not even look up. He knew that he could not help himself. Instead, what does he do? He begs God for mercy. Here's the crazy thing. Again, when they heard Pharisee, they heard good guy. When they heard tax collector, there was probably a boo and a hiss that went through the crowd. But then Jesus hits them with the most important thing at the very end. He says, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. What that means with that word justified, that's a great word. Justified means that God has cleansed you God has made you pure. The way I was taught to remember it in Bible college was, when you're justified, it's just as if I never sinned. So it says, this man threw himself on the mercy of God, and he received justification. And the Pharisee who had done everything right, all the outward trappings of righteousness, Jesus says, he went home unjustified. And as we look at this, there are a couple of eternal truths we see here that are really important. First is this. God is looking at the heart, not at what's going on on the outside. See, all the people thought the Pharisee had it all together because he had all the outward trappings of righteousness. And God is saying, you know what, listen, I'm looking past all that. In the story of David, we're told the story where Samuel comes and he's going to anoint David to be the king. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And he's going to anoint Samuel to be the king. And I'm sorry, he's going to anoint David to be the king. And instead, Eliab, David's brother, comes out. And Samuel looks at him and says, surely this man must be the king. He's tall. He's good looking. Um, one of my favorite passages is someone who's vertically challenged. But God says, God says, don't look on the outside. Look on the inside. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at an outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what that means to us is this. You can get everything right on the outside, but if the inside's not right, it doesn't matter to God. And we're going to get here in a minute to what it takes to get the inside right. And frankly, that's a little bit out of our hands. But if you get everything on the outside right, but you don't have the inside right, it doesn't matter to God. The other thing is this. No one, the other eternal truth is this. No one is good enough to please God. If anybody could have worked their way into heaven, it would have been a Pharisee. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that exact thing. He says, you know what? I was surpassing everybody in righteousness. If anybody could have earned righteousness by their works, it was me. And instead, he says, I consider all that lost. I consider all of it rubbish. None of it was helping me get any closer to God. None of it was helping me to earn my way into heaven. 
Here's what we need to know, and we need to remember this, especially if you're like me and you're a church kid who grew up doing all the right things. We need to remember that we're all sinners. And not only are we all sinners, but we're all helpless sinners. And that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Nobody's good enough to please God on their own. So I don't care how, I don't care how many days you've gone without missing your devotions. You're still not good enough to please God. I don't care how many Sundays you haven't missed church. Still not good enough to please God. For the Pharisee, it doesn't matter how many times he gave 10% of everything. Still not good enough to please God on their own. The next thing is, the next eternal truth here is we, we see that no one is beyond God's reach. You ever have somebody, you're like, that guy's too far gone. I'm not casting my pearls before that swine. And listen, there is a teaching, you know, we need to be wise about how we, how we minister. But if you ever got to the point where you said, that person's too far gone, remember, there's nobody beyond God's reach. When Jesus told the story, the people said, that tax collector, he's a bad guy, Nothing can redeem him. He's unredeemable. And instead, Jesus says, you know, he threw himself on the mercy of God, and he went home justified. But finally, the big eternal truth that I want you to see here is God's hatred and the danger of self-righteousness. And we're going to walk through this here in a second. But what Jesus is really laying out here is this idea that this man, this Pharisee, thought he had it all together, thought that was going to be enough to please God. And at the end of the day, it was all wasted. He went through all the religious activity, and he went home unjustified. But let me, let me just kind of lay out a couple of things that makes this, this sin that we kind of look at, we kind of wink at, we don't even think much about it. Often we don't even consider it a sin. What makes it so dangerous? Tell you what I find this dangerous about self-righteousness in my life is it's incredibly subtle. It's hard to see self-righteousness in my life. And you know why? Because you know the favorite place for self-righteousness to hide? Religious activity. Our former senior pastor, Howard Mays, when I was hired on staff by him, he gave me a card that he gave to all the staff members that we put in our we were supposed to put in the top desk drawer of our desk. And frankly, I've lost it because anything that goes on my desk gets lost. Um, but on the top, the top line of that card was, the works of the flesh are most easily hidden in religious activity. So often my self-righteousness hides behind, while I'm busy, I'm doing God's work. Instead of actually seeking God, I'm doing the work for God. The other thing is, it's one of those sins that can be justified. I'm not self-righteous, I just hate sin. We're all called to hate sin, right? Self-righteousness, by the way, is when you go past hating the sin and start getting really bad feelings towards that person who's sinning. We can justify it by saying, you know what? It's not that I dislike him. I just don't like sin. It's not that I'm looking down on him. I'm just being very careful not to sin. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Remember, the Pharisees, they kept making rule on top of rule on top of rule to add to the Old Testament law in order to make sure that they didn't sin. But instead, what they created was they created self-righteousness, and they created a religion of rules. And the other thing that makes self-righteousness subtle and dangerous is that it can coexist with good doctrine. You know, there's some sins, in order to fall into them, you have to get way off in your doctrine. That's not true with self-righteousness. I'll say this to you, and you guys might, challenge, you guys might think I'm crazy. 
the Pharisees had 99% of all doctrine correct. Let that sink in. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They were keeping the law. Where they fell off the boat was this idea of self-righteousness, this idea that they could earn their way into heaven. But as far as all the works that they were supposed to do, they had it down cold. See, we can have perfect doctrine and still fail in our hearts because we fall into self-righteousness. That makes it subtle, makes it hard to deal with. The next thing that makes it dangerous is this. I want you to look at what happens here in this passage. The Pharisee, his attitude is all wrong. Look at what he says in verse, in verse 11. It says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. <coughs> Robbers, evildoers, or adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What, what is really dangerous about, one of the things that's very dangerous about self-righteousness is it changes the way we look at people. When we think it's all about me and me doing things right, what, what it does is it makes us see people differently than God sees people. For instance, instead of seeing them as people God loves and who Christ died for, we start to see them as people we're competing with. You know what, you, you might look at your brother, sister, Christ, and say, I know they're believers, but at least I'm more righteous than they are. Or I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. We start to look at them as someone we're competing with. We start to look at them as someone who's an enemy. For instance, often what I see in the church and what happens in my own heart is we see people out in the world that are sinning, and rather than seeing them as people who are entrapped by Satan, we see them as people we have to fight against. I want to remind you what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If you're looking around and you're seeing a whole bunch of people you've got to fight against in order to protect God, you might be wrestling with self-righteousness. It changes the way we see people. The other thing it does that's really dangerous is it causes us to cheapen God's grace. Um, when, I'm, when I'm feeling self-righteous, what I'm really saying is, you know what, I'm a pretty good guy. Um, God's lucky to have me on his team. Or, you know what, hey, you know what, I know I'm saved by God's grace, but I probably would have got there on my own eventually. Often when we, when we fall into self-righteousness, we stop defining ourselves as sinners saved by grace. We start defining ourselves as, you know, I was a seeker who found God. I want you to understand, God found you. That's what grace is all about. What we do when we fall into self-righteousness, we fall into this trap of seeing grace as something that we don't really need. We're thankful for it, but we don't need it. One of the things we need to understand to defeat self-righteousness is this. None of us was good enough to be saved, and without God's grace, we'd all still be lost. Next thing is this, not only does it cheapen God's grace, and this is where I think we see it happening a lot in our world today, when we wrestle with self-righteousness, it absolutely destroys our testimony. Because, you know, when we're struggling with self-righteousness, you know what we're doing all the time? We're constantly keeping score. We're constantly saying, am I doing enough? Are they doing enough? And we're constantly, instead of looking to bring the grace of God into someone's life, we're constantly looking to judge them and measure our own righteousness. And by the way, I'll tell you this, self-righteousness is at its heart scorekeeping, which is one of the reasons I struggle with it. I love to keep score. I hate any sport that doesn't have a scoreboard. <laughs> My wife always wants to watch the Olympics and watch figure skating. I'm like, no, 
Show me basketball. I want to see the numbers going up. I want to know who's winning. And that's where, I, that's where self-righteousness is. It's always, am I doing enough? Am I winning? Am I beating them? Nobody wants to be part of a church full of scorekeepers. Nobody wants to come into a kingdom of God that's full of scorekeepers. By the way, God never called us to be a group of scorekeepers. He called us to be conduits of his grace. And when instead of being conduits of his grace, we become self-righteous scorekeepers, nobody wants to hear our message. It ruins our testimony. And I want you to understand here, y'all don't know me real well, so I want you to understand, I'm not, I'm not pointing a finger at you, I'm pointing a finger at me. So I don't know you, I don't know where you're at in this. This is just something that I know that the church struggles with in general. Self-righteousness destroys our testimony. I think one of the reasons people don't want to hear the message the church is giving is because they see the attitude we're giving it with. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of self-diagnostic. You ever take one of those tests where they self-diagnose you? I always fail all of them. I've got whatever the diagnosis is. But let's, let's, let's think about this. How do we, again, I said before, it's a subtle sin. It's one of those things that creeps in when we're not paying attention and we don't even notice it. How do we know that we're struggling with the sin of self-righteousness. A couple things. First is this. If you're really good at seeing the sin in others, but not real good at seeing the sin in you, you might be wrestling with self-righteousness. I feel a little bit like Jeff Fox already. <laughs> you, you. Um, if, you are, if, you are, if you're really good at looking at other people saying, I know exactly what they're doing wrong, but you have a hard time applying that same thing to you, you might be struggling with self-righteousness. Um, I always equate this to, I have five kids, all right? I have a 21-year-old and I have a 5-year-old, which means that I'm really bad at planning. Um, but when, before I had my first son, I was an expert parent. I could look at every... And even, even through my first son, my first son was a very compliant child. Number two gets there, number three gets there, things get a little more difficult. But you remember before you were a parent how easily you could diagnose parenting issues? And now that you have kids of your own, you say, yeah, this is a lot harder than it looks. You're looking around going, don't judge me, I'm trying Sometimes we're really good at seeing sin in other people, but we're not really good at seeing it in ourselves. And if you see that as your mark, if you notice it constantly, you're noticing the flaws, the flaws and faults of other people, check yourself for self-righteousness. If, we're performing, if you're performing a whole bunch of religious activities, but you're not actually communing with God, that's a sign of self-righteousness. Look at the Pharisee here. He, he gives a list of all the things he's doing to please God. I'm giving 10% of all I own. I fast twice a week. All these things. He's doing all these religious activities, but he's not actually engaging with the God who he says he's worshiping. So if you're, if you're constantly in religious activity, but you're not taking the time to, to engage with the Father, you might be struggling with self-righteousness. If you're comparing yourself to others rather than to Jesus, here's where we really get off track. So often we say, you know what? I'm not great, but I'm better than him. Look at the Pharisee here. He says, Lord, thank you. Look at the arrogance of this guy. And when I say that, remember, I believe that I have more in common with this Pharisee often than I do with this tax collector. But look at what he says. He says, thank you, you didn't make me like other men. Thank you, you didn't make me an adulterer. Actually, there was a, there was a school of Pharisees who would actually pray every day, Lord, thank you, you didn't make me a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. I'm sorry, ladies, I didn't, mean, I didn't say it. They said it. But here's the thing. That's self-righteousness. If we're comparing ourselves to others, if we're constantly saying I'm better than him, and that's really our goal, what, is, what are we supposed to compare ourselves to? To the standard of Jesus. 
And here's the thing. When I put myself up against Jesus, I always come short. There's no righteousness in me when I'm standing next to Jesus. So if we're comparing ourselves to others rather than to God, we might be struggling with self-righteousness. If we have a condescension towards others, if we're looking down on those around us, that's what Jesus says he's dealing with. He says, to those who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He says, if you're looking down on others because you think you're righteous, you're struggling with self-righteousness. Here's what I'm going to throw in here that's not in the text. If you're sitting there right now and you're saying, I wish so-and-so could hear this message, you might be struggling with self-righteousness. <laughs> Listen, it's a problem. It's damaging our witness. It's destroying, it's destroying the things that we say we believe in and we say that we want to do. So how do we get over it? If we know that we have it, how do we overcome it? The first thing we need to do is examine ourselves. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells a great story. He, says, he talks about a man who has a speck in his eye. And his brother wants to help him take the speck out. But he says, before you take the speck out, take the plank out of your eye. And actually, it's a, it's, a hilarious, it's a hilarious story if you think about it. Because what Jesus is saying is this idea that this one man's got a telephone pole sticking out of his eye. And he says, let me get close and look in your eye and take your speck out. And the whole time, he's just beating him up with that pole. If we think we struggle with self-righteousness, first thing we need, even if we don't think it, we need to examine ourselves. We need to check ourselves. Say, Lord, show me any sin of self-righteousness in my life so that I can get rid of it, so I can bring more glory and honor to your grace. Examine yourself. Next thing is if you find it, there are two things we need to do when we find sin in our life. First is confess. Confess just means simply agree with God that that sin is sin. In other words, stop justifying your sin. Stop saying it's okay. Instead, say, all right, Lord, you say this is sin. It's sin. And then once you confess it, the next step we take is we repent from that sin. Repent means that we turn and we move away from it. When I have free time, I like to work on my own cars. And I'll, I'll illustrate repentance so we can understand it here. When you repent, you change direction. One time I was working on one of my cars, and I had figured out what I had to do. I got all my wrenches together, and I was looking at the job from above, but I had to do it from below. And so I got down below the car, and I started twisting on this, on this nut that had to come off. And no matter how hard I twisted, it would not move. If you're a mechanic here, you already know where I'm going probably. You're also probably thinking, man, what a bonehead. Don't let him touch my car. All right. So here's what happened. This thing wouldn't move. So I got, I got my liquid wrench out. I sprayed it real hard. Pushed some more. Nothing happened. Got a bigger wrench. Sometimes the wrenches are the best tools. Sometimes you need a bigger wrench. And so I got a bigger wrench. Then I got a hammer. Nothing moved. Finally, I got out my blowtorch. And I heated that thing up red hot. I mean, it was glowing. And I put the wrench on. It didn't move. And I just sat there exhausted. And I thought, oh, I'm turning it the wrong way. And I repented because you know what I did? I didn't turn it anymore that way. I turned it the other way. And you know what happened? It came right off. <laughs> Listen, when you find self-righteousness in your life, it's not just enough to agree it's self-righteous. You need to repent of it. You need to turn and you need to walk the other way. Here's the problem. It's not easy and it's not a one-time decision. Every day... Satan gets in our ear and tries to push this sin into our minds. And we have to every day confess, say, Lord, that attitude's a sin. And every day say, Lord, that attitude's a sin I'm walking away from. When you see it, confess it and repent it. And then finally, the cure for self-righteousness is closeness to the God of the universe. 
So if we want to overcome this, you know what we do? We spend more time in his word. We spend more time in his presence, not just checking boxes, not just doing the things that are on my to-do list, but instead seeking his face, praying before him so that he can show you self-righteousness. I want to encourage you with this. I said before, I think this is something that is destroying the testimony of the church. Excuse me. (coughs) But here's what I think is amazing. If we can get past this idea of self-righteousness, if instead of being self-righteous, we can recognize ourselves as sinners saved by God's grace and made into his saints, if we can embrace his love for us, embrace what he's done for us, and then extend that grace to others, all of a sudden our testimony becomes very appealing. And more important than that, more important than people coming to know Jesus, our God is lifted up and we demonstrate his character before the world around us. Getting this out of our hearts and out of our minds and out of our lives will magnify the glory of God in a way that almost nothing else will. It's a tremendous opportunity for us to really see God work if we'll get rid of ourself and instead seek him. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you so much just for your love and grace. I thank you, Lord, that even though I don't deserve it, you saved me from my sins. I thank you, Lord, that even though I did all kinds of works that were useless, you and your grace lifted me up and saved me. I thank you, Lord, that that's the way you've worked in every one of our hearts here today who know you. I ask, Lord, that you'll help us to magnify your grace and minimize ourselves. I ask, Lord, you'll help us to really extend the love of God that's manifest in his grace to the people around us. I ask, Lord, you'll cleanse us of pride and self-righteousness and instead fill us with love. And I ask, Lord, that through this you'll be glorified as we leave out of here today. I ask, Lord, you'll you'll help us to take your gospel and grace with us for your glory and honor. In Christ's name.